0: My guest on today's show is Roz Husanian, the chief investment officer of the $6 billion Helmsley Charitable Trust. Prior to joining Helmsley in 2010, Roz had a storied career in the industry, highlighted by her two decades of work as the consultant to CalPERS while at Wilshire Associates. Our conversation tracks Roz's career, including lessons from teaching children, the most important rule of management, Successful Investment Consulting, Taking Time Off, and Joining Helmsley. We then turn to her current role and cover opportunistic-based allocation, theme identification, benefits of concentrating in managers, oversight of a team and due diligence, stories from the front lines, exciting investment opportunities, co-investments, and governance. Roz's many ideas and methods for how to get things done manifest a managerial excellence that many in our field can apply. I learned a lot from her, and I'm sure you will too. I hope you enjoy the show, and if you do, this week, why not reach out to that friend of yours? You know the one I'm talking about. There's someone you've known forever and trust and love so much. You probably only see each other maybe every year or two these days, but whenever you get together, it's like no time had passed at all. Go ahead, reach out to them, and just say Hi. When it comes up what inspired you to reach out, just tell them you thought of them while listening to the Capital Allocators podcast. And maybe they want to have a listen too. Thanks so much for spreading the word. Please enjoy my conversation with Roz Hussanian. Roz, thanks so much for doing this.
1: Happy to do it, and thank you for having me.
0: Well, I always love to start with someone's background. Okay. So why don't you take me through... How you got started in the business and how that grew to being here today?
1: Well, I think one of the most important facets of my background has nothing to do with what I'm doing today per se, and that is I have an undergraduate degree in special education and I taught learning challenge children for a couple of years before I went back and got an MBA. And it has proven to be, without a doubt, the most important facet of my overall career because what is the strength of someone's career? the ability to communicate, get your point across and make sure that someone truly understands what you're trying to tell them. And if you can do that with learning challenge children, you can do it with anybody. So that's the most important thing to know about me.
0: How long did you spend doing that?
1: I taught for about three years. And this was at the height of the teacher crisis in the United States. We had too many teachers, not enough jobs, because the generation behind us was much smaller. They were closing schools. So it came down to what was I going to do next?
0: Are there specific tools that you learned from that experience teaching special ed kids that are applicable?
1: Absolutely. The first is you have to start with where the student is. And that sounds rather basic, but you have to understand that if you're going to teach the child how to read, or if you're going to teach the child how to do math, you need to understand where is the child now? What does the child know or not know? What are the skills? What are the deficit? And you've got to start at that very basic level. And If you want to communicate effectively with an adult, you've got to understand where is that adult coming from to begin with and start there. You can't start with where you're coming from. Otherwise, that gulf is too big to bridge. And that's why communication breaks down. If you know you're going to try to convince somebody who has a different point of view of a point you want to make, you've got to start out with, well, what is that person's point of view? Why do they believe what they believe? What are their priors and bona fides? And you start there. And by doing that, you de-risk the situation for everybody involved. So the person you're talking to doesn't feel threatened, just like with a child. When you start out with where the child is, the child won't feel threatened and put up a wall and therefore is more willing to learn, the other person who's an adult won't put up the wall and is more willing to hear.
0: Are there others? Because that's a great one.
1: That's a big one. It's very important to have clarity of thought and communication. You can't just start talking, just like you just can't start teaching. You have to have a plan. And you have to have a plan for how to communicate. And you've got to recognize where that plan could be taken off course. So you do have to have that flexibility. And those are things you're taught in student teaching scenarios, in teaching methods classes, and they have served me well my entire career.
0: Yeah. So what a fantastic start. And so you decide you're not going to do that for the rest of your life. So
1: to remain in education, I would have to get an advanced degree. So I knew I was going to back for a master's degree or an advanced degree. And if I wasn't going to get it in education because teachers were getting laid off, then what was available to me? Well, the medicine, law, or business. Well, lawyers were getting laid off at that time in the 70s. There was a glut of lawyers. We didn't need any more lawyers As far as medicine is concerned, I can't stand needles or the sight of blood. So that was that. (laughs) And so by default, I was left with business. And I went into applying for an MBA with the idea that I would continue my sort of helping profession orientation and I would go into human resources. That's what I thought until I walked into my first finance class and... Initially, I thought, I was born and raised in the United States. We all speak English. How come I don't understand a word the professor is saying? <laughs> and once I got over the shock of that, I realized, oh, my God, I really love this stuff. And it was that very first finance class that set the course for the rest of my life. I left there and went to what is now Kraft General Foods. Okay. So it was Kraft. Okay. So it was General Foods at the time. And I went to work in the Maxwell House division. So Coffee. In fact, if you go to the supermarket and you look on the shelf and you find Maxwell House Master Blend Coffee, you can still find it. It has one facing, which means that there's only one row back as opposed to rows across on the shelf. That was the first thing I worked on.
0: And so what were those early experiences like for you?
1: First of all, I was a woman entering a man's field. So I was the only woman in my department. And then a couple of months later, they finally hired a second woman. And the two of us, her name was Rhonda. The two of us became fast friends because we were the only ones. The only other women in the department were the administrative assistants. So it was the late 70s. We're getting our start. We're trying to make our way in the world. And we had to deal with everything from we weren't part of the club to, in the extreme, sexual harassment and overtures. I mean, that was par for the course. None of the laws that exist today even existed back then. And we had to make our way in the world. So that's what it was like. And my view was, look, I entered this field. I knew it wasn't going to be easy, but I love the intellectual challenge. I love being able to work with the numbers and out of that create create a new brand, a new product, a new strategy, a new something, and that was exciting to me.
0: Were there early mentors that helped you navigate those very difficult environments?
1: My very first boss at General Foods was a fantastic guy. He and I got along famously, he was hysterically funny, and he taught me how to bring humor to the party. He saw the funny in everything, and that helped a lot. He was also highly regarded and highly respected, so there was a bit of a halo effect. Because I was working for him, that helped a lot. Whereas my friend Rhonda was working for someone else who wasn't quite as well-regarded and as well-respected, and she had a more difficult time. So he was a tremendous mentor in getting me going. He taught me the most important rule of management, which is you're a teacher first And I could relate to that. The first thing he taught me about management is that when I did something wrong, the first question he asked me is, well, what didn't I do for you in terms of either direction or instruction, or were you not ready to handle this, or the focus was on what could he have done better as a manager and that was a lesson i took from him for the rest of my career so when something goes wrong in the office my first reaction is okay well how could i have done this differently for my team
0: so how long did you stay there
1: i was there about 3 years i was headhunted away by pepsi general foods was very staid and very methodical and pepsi was the wild wild west and it was a fast-paced environment. People worked around the clock. You could get three meals a day at Pepsi. And if you needed to, there was a cot and showers. Wow. Just a hard-charging, hard-driving environment. And I was hired as as an associate working for the person who headed up pensions and investments. But titles meant nothing at Pepsi. You got involved in everything. And so while... Ostensibly, I was promoted to the manager of pensions and investments. I worked on a restructuring of the company that resulted in their getting away from non-core businesses and focusing on beverages and snack foods. Most people don't remember this, but at one time, Pepsi owned North American Van Lines Moving Company. They owned a trucking company. They owned Burpee Seeds. They owned Wilson Sporting Goods, none of which had anything to do with snack foods and beverages. So we worked on a team that quietly came up with a plan to divest of all of that stuff. And that was very exciting. My day job was to look after the pension fund and Pepsi was on the leading edge of everything. And when Congress changed the tax law to allow the creation of what we now lovingly know as 401k plans, Pepsi put one of the first 401k plans in as an employee benefit, and I was on the team that instituted that. I created the investment options that were used for Pepsi's plan. So being on the front lines of that was really, really important.
0: What led you to move from there to your next stop?
1: So again, I was raided away. In the course of my work at Pepsi, I had recognized that diversifying away from what had been traditionally the nifty 50, the 50 largest companies in the United States, which dominated everybody's investment portfolios, that exposure to small company stocks could have an impact. And I worked to recommend to Pepsi's board to hire dimensional fund advisors. And it's my understanding that today... That manager's still in Pepsi's portfolio some 30-some-odd years yeah, later. Wow. So I had worked with the dimensional people, and it was very early days for them. They didn't even have $500 million under management. That's how many years ago this was. And they were looking to expand, and they offered me a job to join them on the West Coast when they moved out to California to Santa Monica. So I went with them, and that's how I got to Santa Monica. And I worked with them for about 18 months. And in the course of my working with them, I worked with Wilshire Associates in order to land the California State Teachers Retirement Fund account for Dimensional Fund Advisors. So I was on the DFA side of that equation. And a gentleman by the name of Alan Emkin, who was an investment consultant at Wilshire at the time was the investment consultant to what we affectionately refer to as Calsters, And he and I worked together, and he was looking to expand his staff. So about 18 months into my tenure, after we landed the Calsters account, he called me up one day and he said, why don't we go to lunch? I said, okay, fine. And I meet him to go to lunch, and he said, we're going to have sushi, I hate sushi. (laughs) But I was too polite to tell him I didn't like sushi. So I went and I figured out how to eat sushi. And in the course of the lunch, he offered me a job. And I thought about this. And the part about it that intrigued me is that when I was at Pepsi, I saw the entire investment landscape. At a money management firm, I only saw the money manager's point of view. And I saw this as a way of going back and seeing the broader landscape by working at Wilshire Associates. And so Alan hired me and he was the second mentor in my career because he really taught me how to be an investment consultant. And from him, I learned how to really think on my feet and under pressure in public meetings with the press because CalPERS ended up being my biggest account when he left Wilshire. I ended up as the lead investment consultant to CalPERS. And I worked at Wilshire for 21 years. And I worked with CalPERS the whole 21 years. And if you look at the wall over there, you'll see a certificate. CalPERS gave me a resolution thanking me for my work as a contractor. Usually that was only bestowed upon board members and high-ranking employees. I was the only contractor they ever gave that to. And that made my career. That gave me a global presence.
0: You mentioned that Alan taught you how to be a consultant. Right. And CalPERS, I think about two decades at CalPERS, there are all kinds of impressions people have about governance challenges at a place like CalPERS without pointing them out. You (laughs) think? What were those tools that you learned to be able to navigate some of those tricky waters?
1: The most important thing that Alan taught me was that it's not about me. Okay, it wasn't about him, it wasn't about me, it was about the client, and you're dealing with the client who's right in front of you, and because of the governance issues, and because of the politics, which could change every four years, it was about the client. So by being 100% apolitical, and not getting caught up in the client's politics, was exceedingly important. The other thing that he taught me, which is really, really, really important, is you never say no to the client, Now, think about that. If you're an investment consultant and they're only 24 hours of the day and you never say no to the client, you're either trying to figure out how to get 48 hours worth of work into 24 hours or you never say no and then figure out how to give them at least some of what they want so that this way you show them that you've heard them and that's 90% of what the issue is. The client wants to be heard. So I took that a step farther and decided, well, that's a really good mantra for dealing with your boss. And from that, I never said no to a boss. I either said, let me figure this out, or I hadn't thought about that, but I'm going to think about it, and I'm going to come back to you with what I can do. But I never say no.
0: Is that a communication tool, or is it a work ethic.
1: It's a survival tool. <laughs> Let's face it. Nobody can ruin your day faster than your boss can. So what are the reasons why bosses ruin your day? Because bosses want what they want. And they don't want to hear no. And now that I've been a boss for as many years as I've been a boss, I'm not too thrilled with hearing no either. Right. So one of the things that I tell my staff is don't ever tell me no. Figure out how to at least get me something of what I'm asking. And if you, if you show me that you've thought about that and that you can do some of it, but not all of it, and here's why you can't do the other part of it, I'm more willing to listen than if your immediate reaction is no. Because that tells me you're not valuing what I'm asking you and you're not thinking about it. And that's what people really want to know.
0: When that came to the advice that you gave as consultants for different clients, How do you grow into sort of a set of beliefs about investing?
1: I'm a student of the efficient market hypothesis. I'm also a student of due diligence is the most important thing that you can do. I'm also a student of the importance of the trade-off between risk and return. And if you can hold true to those three principles, you can get a lot done. So... If you start out with, well, I'll never do an energy investment because fossil fuel is bad, well, guess what? It's a pretty significant portion of our overall economy. So how can you make it a good investment, number one? And number two, how do you make sure you have a seat at the table so that your concerns about the environment are well-voiced? So I never adopted this all-or-nothing attitude toward anything because invariably, life isn't that black or white or cut and dried. And usually, if you keep your eye on what the bigger picture is, you can figure out a way to get there with virtually any investment. So it's important to hew to those three broad principles that are sufficiently broad that you can accommodate in a consulting arrangement, for example, the client's desires and wishes.
0: I want to take a quick turn because a lot of what we've been banting around could be wrapped up into sort of index funds. So you, you mentioned early on, hey, the nifty 50 alone isn't a great way to go. What's your take on large institutions that have governance challenges and the applicability of just a simple index approach?
1: So let's take helpers specifically because it's 300 billion dollars. The biggest challenge we had was where to put all the money. And the problem was, is they couldn't hire enough active managers to even move the needle. They would have to hand out billion-dollar chunks. They could hire 20 of them. And they still had $220 billion left over. Right. So you can see how The law of large numbers worked against traditional active management. So from a cost standpoint and from a volume standpoint, CalPERS at Wilshire's recommendation has a significant portion of its assets indexed to the Wilshire 5000 stock index. And the reason why is because you can't hire that many managers, When hedge funds started coming into the consciousness of institutional investors, CalPERS went down that road. And I said to them, I'll help you do this, but I think you're going to find that it's going to be difficult for you to invest. And sure enough, the best hedge funds wanted nothing to do with CalPERS because CalPERS wasn't willing to pay their fees. And Ted Aliopoulos, the chief investment officer, eliminated the hedge fund program. And He got a lot of heat from that, primarily from the hedge fund industry, because I saw it as being very negative. And he came to meet with me one day, and I said to him, that was a great decision. And I've been on the record in the industry talking about that, because people know that I was the investment consultant to CalPERS. And I said, look, if you're a $3 billion foundation, hedge funds can work for you. When you're a $300 billion governmental pension funds, not so much. Context is everything.
0: What is it that prevents a CalPERS from just going 100% index and eliminating some of these governance decision-making challenges? Well,
1: they've been moving in that direction. So they eliminated hedge funds. They dramatically reduced their active management component. Their equities are pretty much 100% indexed. They've internally managed their fixed income, and they've done it in a very modest way. It's not indexed. But instead of swinging for the fences, they went for little singles and doubles. And that approach has helped CalPERS steadily compound the returns in fixed income. So it has the, the ballast effect that you would want in an overall investment portfolio. Because they manage it internally, it's very cost effective. And the staff has delegated the authority within broad guidelines as to how to do it. And it's worked out very, very well. The other areas where they have active management is in real estate and private equity. They brought in strategic partners, Blackstone in particular, to help them on the private equity side. On the real estate side, it actually makes some sense for them to actively manage the real estate. CalPERS is so big, they can go out and buy a shopping center. In fact, at the time when shopping centers were doing so well, CalPERS owned a lot of them in the United States, as an example.
0: You're at Wilshire for a long time 21 21 years. And what was the impetus for moving on from there?
1: That is an interesting story. Wilshire's managing partner managed our partner's capital, and he did it by trading hedge funds. And in the early 2000s, there was a scandal in the United States. Wilshire found itself in the midst of an SEC investigation. We found out later on we were not the target. The firms we were trading with were the target, but the SEC doesn't tell you that. This is
0: hedge fund trading or mutual fund trading? Mutual fund
1: trading, I'm sorry. Mutual fund trading. And the way that uh, our managing partner managed the capital was trading mutual funds. So to make a long story short, it was three very intense years where my day job was managing all of my clients with the overhang of an SEC investigation. And my nighttime job was going through every sheet of paper that Wilshire published to see if there was anything that the SEC could misconstrue, use against us. And it was a very, very intense time. After three years, Wilshire came through with flying colors, squeaky clean. Dennis Tito was the managing partner at Wilshire, is an interesting guy, but I always knew that he was an honest guy, a straightforward guy, and I could take that to the bank. And I knew I had nothing to worry about. So after those three years, quite honestly, I was exhausted. I had no gas left in the tank. And I couldn't even pull myself out of bed to go to work in the morning anymore. I was just really tired. So I walked into the office one day, And then I just picked up the phone, and I called Dennis, and I said, do you have 10 minutes? He said, sure, come on down. Went into his office, and I said, I quit. And he looked at me, and he said, what can I do to talk you out of this? And I said, if there was something I thought you could do to talk me out of this, I would have told you. I said, look, you gave me a fabulous opportunity, and I worked my ass off for you. It was a fair trade. But now it's time to close out the trade. And we left on phenomenal terms. And now Helmsley's a client of Wilshire. So where I worked for them, they now work for me.
0: <laughs> so I want to get to Helmsley, but I know there was a stop in the middle.
1: There was. Clay Finley. So that was an interesting story. So I left, I left Wilshire not knowing what I was going to do. And I had been working so hard that when I stopped working, I was still sort of bouncing off the walls. And a friend of mine said to me, you know what you need to do? You need to go hiking in Zion National Park. So we drove to Zion National Park and we went hiking for several days. I had never hiked before. And once I did, I realized why that was a good thing to do because it thoroughly and totally physically exhausted me I decompressed emotionally, came back from that trip, and I was like, well, okay, I have no obligations, responsibilities, or worries, so what am I going to do? I'm going to go visit those parts of the world I'd never seen before. I went to Bali. I went to parts of Asia. I went to countries in Europe I hadn't seen. And I was having a great time for myself, and then somebody found me. It was Matt Applestein who had worked at Fidelity and now is working for Old Mutual. And he called me up and he said, now that you're not working for anybody, we'd really love if you could come to Old Mutual's annual meeting and with no restrictions, tell us what you really think. So I went into the meeting and I gave my speech. And after the speech was over, the head of old mutual asset management pulled me aside and said, I'd like you to have breakfast with me tomorrow morning. I said, okay. So I had breakfast with him in the morning and during the course of the breakfast, he said, we have a um, subsidiary, Clay Finley, that's in need of a turnaround and in need of someone with gravitas in the industry to replace Francis Finley, who's retiring. So I said, sure, why not? They had no idea whether I could run a money management firm, but they thought that they would be able to help me. So I got there, and the situation was a little more dire than what they had led me to believe. And my first day actually was the day of my birthday. That's why I remember it. It was November 7th of 2007. Well, guess what happened? (laughs) So within six weeks, I had a business plan on Old Mutual's desk for what it was going to take to turn Clay Finley around. That blew them away. Apparently, none of the other affiliate money managers had ever delivered a business plan to the parent. But I gave them a business plan with staffing, revenue projections, cost savings, the whole bit. I just put the whole thing together and one about executing the business plan and then Old Mutual blew a hole in its balance sheet, having nothing to do with Clay Finley. And it needed capital from wherever it could get it. And so a decision was made way high up to just shut Clay Finley down. But the benefit was that I stuck to my business plan. And part of my business plan was for me to go out and start telling the outside world about what we were doing. And my message, because I was an investment consultant, I went to all the investment consultants and I said, we're not ready for you to hire us yet, but watch us. I'll tell you when we're ready, but watch what we're doing. And I explained the plan. The benefit of that was when we were closed, the battery acid splashed all over Old Mutual. And that meant everybody at Clay Finley were viewed as the victim's not as the perpetrators of the problem. And so virtually everybody landed on their feet in the middle of the financial crisis, including Josh Fenton, who's now working for me here again. So what
0: brought you to Helmsley?
1: Aha. (laughs) So Clay Finley gets closed. And now I'm thinking, all right, I was lucky once, what's going to happen a second time? I had no idea. So I just started having lunch with my friends and talking to people. And one day, Tom Stevens, who's the founding partner of LA Capital, who was one of my former partners at Wilshire, called me up and he said, Linda Strumpf, who was my client at the Ford Foundation, but she's now retired, is chairman of the investment committee at the Helmsley Trust. It's a brand new foundation that's getting off the ground, and she's looking for somebody Who could be a chief investment officer who's really good at dealing with difficult boards? And I thought to myself, (laughs) you've dealt with CalPERS. (laughs) So Linda and I met, and I had always known of Linda, and Linda had known of me, but we had never met. And when we met, we hit it off immediately. And we met a couple of more times, and I don't know how she did it, but she convinced the trustees that they needed to hire somebody like me. And then she brought me in to interview with the trustees and she had already laid the groundwork. And I was in the supermarket a couple of days later. I'll never forget this. I was in the produce section and my cell phone rang and it was Linda offering me the job. And that's how I ended up here.
0: So you've had all these experiences at this point. You've worked for active managers. You worked at DFA, you worked at Wilshire. Now you have a single pool of capital. So you can put forward an investment strategy. What were the key tenets of what you believed worked for a pool of capital like this?
1: Number one, no boxes. The Frank Russell company was famous for coming up with boxes, growth, value, large cap growth, mid cap growth, small cap growth, boxes for everything. And I recognized right away that the box approach to investing was a disaster. It forced you to fill a box because you had one. And then you had to pass on an investment if you didn't have a box for it. So one of the things that became clear is that opportunistic investing has a place and should be celebrated. So the way that we manage money at Helmsley is that the biggest risk we have to manage for a foundation is liquidity risk because we have to pay out 5% of our assets every year. And we have no say in that. The IRS requires us to do that. Otherwise, we lose our tax-qualified status. And I might remind you what happened to our beneficiary. (laughs) So needless to say, we at Helmsley are quite sensitive to the desires of the IRS.
0: Why don't you tell that story just in case people don't know?
1: Leona and Harry Helmsley were prosecuted by both the state of New York and the federal government for income tax evasion and specifically for having paid personal expenses from business accounts, deducting that from income, and then paying tax on on the difference. So Leona Helmsley went to jail on the um, federal charges, but she was acquitted on the New York State charges with a different legal team. And Alan Dershowitz represented her on the New York State charges. So anyway, needless to say, we're very sensitive to that here. And her grandsons are our trustees. Great guys. Can't say enough great things about Mrs. Helmsley's grandsons. They're young guys. Well, relative to me, but I would follow them into hell. I mean, I have a great deal of respect for them. So when I got to Helmsley, it became clear that liquidity was an issue In managing the 5%. And the benefit that we had is that the money came out of Mrs. Helmsley's estate after the financial crisis was over. So we had the value of her estate that had not been marred by the financial crisis. That gave me an opportunity to talk to all of my peers to understand their lessons learned having come through the financial crisis. And out of that, Came opportunistic investing. If I was convinced of it before, I was really convinced of it now. And number two, that managing liquidity was critical. So we have four liquidity tiers safe, liquid, semi liquid, illiquid. And they're defined simply by how quickly we can get the money back. Because in a crisis, I have to know where I can get money in order to get that money out the door. And
0: then do you have percentages that you ascribe to each of those buckets? Yes, we do.
1: And And um, what are
0: those percentages?
1: The safe assets category is at 20%. The semi-liquid is at 22%. The illiquid category is at 25%, and the balance is in the liquid category. We put the plan together. We presented it to our investment committee. They approved it. We paired it with a committed standby line of credit. And the committed standby line of credit can actually fund the grant making so that we can fund the investment side. Because one of the things that happened to Ford, Carnegie Mellon, Hewlett, Packard, is that in 2007, all of their private capital managers raised big funds And then when the market sold off, they started hitting them for capital calls. Sure. At the same time, they're trying to get money out the door for their grants. That fight for cash left some of them still permanently impaired. Some of those foundations still have not gotten back to their 2007 high watermark. So we recognized, having learned from their lesson, that if we can fund the grants from a committed standby line of credit, let the markets recover, use our safe assets category to fund the capital calls from our private capital, then we could take advantage of the market sell-off, investing at the low, fund our grants, and not impair the financial health. And when markets recover, pay back the
0: loan. Can you talk about how a governance structure works with an opportunistic strategy?
1: Effectively, our investment committee is responsible for overall strategy. They approve our broad policy, so the liquidity tiers and the allocations. They're also responsible for approving new managers. So the way that we bring opportunistic to them is that we have broad themes that we develop. So a member of our staff is our director of strategy and research. It's her responsibility to identify broad themes and we're not looking for her to forecast the themes. We're looking for her to identify the themes that exist and we want to ride the wave. So
0: what are those waves today?
1: Healthcare is a big one. Longevity in healthcare. As people are aging, their consumption of healthcare is increasing and their consumption patterns are changing. What people in their 60s and 70s consume are different than what people in their 20s and 30s consume. So- People want less stuff when they're older and more experiences, and younger people who are building their families and buying homes and buying furniture and buying stuff. So it's different. And the baby boomers are a major segment of the poor population. So that's a theme that we've been developing. Technology and disruption is another one of our themes. And that's an extremely rich one. And we've been investing in that to the hilt. So you can see that we're not forecasting these things. The marketplace is showing us these themes and we're just taking advantage of them.
0: How do you think about how much of the portfolio goes into healthcare technology and disruption compared to sort of more broader things that you might miss if you're just focusing on the themes?
1: First of all, We don't have set target allocations to those themes because they're opportunistic. We use the themes to help us narrow down where we're going to look because we can't invest in everything. And the themes represent those areas of the economy where we have the highest probability of success because the market is rewarding them right now. So instead of having a specific allocation, we look to find what investments are available and invest in the best of the investments. So that's where the opportunistic comes from. If I had a specific bucket with a target, I'd have to fill it, which means that not only am I investing in the best, if I can get into the best, I might have to invest in the second best and maybe even the third best to get my allocation filled. So the fewer target allocations I have, the happier I am. And our investment committee gets it.
0: If I put on a traditional lens to think about the structure of the portfolio as opposed to say the liquidity lens, which is one, what does it look like? So somewhere you have a sheet of paper, you have to understand your risk. You have a couple themes, maybe a bunch of themes. What does it look like and how do you decide that you're comfortable with what you own?
1: We have a director of risk and operations whose job it is to ensure that we're taking the risks we want to take and we're not taking the risks we don't want to take. We have the broad targets. We have themes that help us within those targets figure out where we're looking for investments. And we spend a lot of time on looking at the incremental impact of every investment that we make. The second thing is, and this may help you a little bit, is that we have a maximum of no more than 50 managers, five zero, for $6 billion. That makes us very different from our peers. It also makes the situation much more manageable. So we might have multiple products with a particular manager, but it helps us manage our overall risk because we know a manager will have a similar risk profile for all of their products because it's endemic to their philosophy. And I'm looking for conviction. So to answer your question, that makes it very important for us to look at the incremental risk and return of the portfolio every time we add or take out a manager. One of the things that we're looking at right now, to give you an example as to how it works, is that in discussions with our our investment committee, we're looking at the rise of China and how important China's become. And the question is, well, should we have a more systematic approach to dealing with China or should we just be dealing with it opportunistically? We've decided that we want to be a little more systematic about it. We have exposure in our illiquid category. We want exposure in our semi-liquid category. And we're going about looking at how to do that. And the team surfaced all in about 10 managers to look at. And they were all over the place. So our directive to the team was, let's think about this. Let's think about what we have Already, we can model that. And then look at adding each individual opportunity that you found and figure out where the best risk return trade off is coming from. And let's just say, for argument, it's a broadly diversified, long only manager. Well, if that's the best risk return trade off, now find five others like that and look at the comparison and see where the best trade-off is. So that's how we go about it.
0: When you add it all up, where does your risk profile look compared to peers?
1: We're not radically different from our peers because all other foundations have the same objective we have, which is earn back 5% plus inflation to last into perpetuity. Where we differ from our peers is that we're a lot chunkier because we're more concentrated as a portfolio. But our returns and our risk profile are not radically different as a result. And we're a little bar So we're higher in the safe assets category compared to our peers, Robert Wood Johnson, Hewlett Packard. If you look at what their allocations are for the equivalent of our safe assets category, it's more in the 10 to 12% range. We're higher, but we've been far more selective in the private capital range and more concentrated, and that's actually worked for us.
0: Does that lend more private equity than venture?
1: No, we're actually pretty evenly split between them. That's something that we do look at and we do watch. We're sort of a little heavier on venture capital right now. We wanna build up our buyout portfolio a little bit more. So we look at that vis-a-vis how quickly the money's drawn down how quickly we get the money back. One of the things that's happening to a lot of our peers that we've been able to watch is that they haven't been getting the money back from their venture capital managers as fast as they thought they were. So those tails are much longer. We monitor and we built a model internally to help us forecast out what we think the allocation of private capital will be. We model drawdowns and return of capital and we can see how the allocations, if we did nothing, and just freeze the portfolio here, the way it would play out in terms of our allocations. And that helps us determine what we need to focus on more.
0: So let's start diving into the investment process. And we'll just start at the top and work down. How do you think about sourcing managers?
1: I allow the staff to follow their natural curiosity. So we have a meeting every Monday morning. In that meeting, we talk about the things that we're working on, the issues that we have, where we're focusing on. So let's go back to my China example. We all agreed with our investment committee, China's an interesting place to have more exposure. I never said to them, long only, hedge funds, whatever. I just said, well, think about this. And I allowed them to go out and find the best managers they could. And then after they came back with a team of managers that were all over the place, Now they could see uh, we need to organize this a little bit better.
0: How many people are are out running around looking for those managers? Six. And they're all some generalists of some. They're all generalists.
1: Everybody's a generalist and they're different levels. And I run a very flat organization. My associates, my investment officers and my directors who are all responsible for managers have equal opportunity for sourcing and doing due diligence. And by allowing the younger people to have the same authority to source a manager, I get some very interesting findings because they're not burdened with sort of the biases that people with more experience have. The other thing, too, is that by not dictating where they're going to look and letting them find what they find, we get much more interesting managers that way. And as a result, I'd rather have 10 disparate but interesting managers than three managers that are based on what I directed. yeah. And then out of that, we see what the opportunity set, and then we can do our analysis and drive home to an ultimate conclusion.
0: At what point in time will you get involved in imparting some of your judgment on the process?
1: I try not to impose too much of my direction because I really want to see their creativity. but. My biggest role is to make sure that policy is adhered to, and we have a due diligence policy. I want to make sure that they've addressed the issues thoroughly. I want to make sure that there have been a sufficient number of meetings that those meetings are robust. I will go on site with them at a later stage, and when I go on site, I'm watching them, not the managers. I'm watching what kind of questions are they asking? What kind of prep did they do before we walk into the meeting? And my focus is not on them, not on the manager. And they recognize that the pressure's on them to do the work on the manager. Now, if I honestly think they were going to make a big mistake, then I would step in. But there are too many eyes on the manager. And we staff every manager who's undergoing a deep dive for due diligence with a sponsor, a skeptic, and a director. That's above and beyond me. So with three sets of eyes on a manager, chances are you're not going to make a mistake. That said, we have gotten surprised. It still happens. I'll give you an example where we made an investment where we missed something and we did not make an investment. Abraj was a rapidly growing venture capital firm focused on the emerging markets. And its founder was a very flamboyant guy. And we were very interested in the emerging markets and specifically venture capital. Three of us flew to Dubai. We did a lot of work on the firm, a lot of work on the firm, but there was something that just wasn't hanging together. And in talking about it, the tipping point came when the founder announced that he was going to raise a $10 billion fund. We all looked at each other and we said, $10 billion in emerging markets, private equity, venture capital, the numbers don't add up. And so we just thought, there's something not right about that. And we walked away. The founder of the firm is under indictment. He's hiding in London because he can't go back to the UAE because there's a warrant for his arrest. The Gates Foundation did invest with them. And they were the ones who figured out that something was wrong. So, I'm very proud of the fact that I one-upped Bill Gates. (laughs) And by trusting our instincts and recognizing this didn't add up, we walked away. We also invested with another firm, Autonomy. And one day, somebody on my staff comes in and says, there's a New York Post article on the founder of Autonomy. And he apparently was being sued in New York by a spurned girlfriend. And that situation got very, very messy very quickly. Just before that article came out, the manager had an uncharacteristic loss in Puerto Rican bonds. And when I went in to meet with the manager, because the team was telling me, something's not hanging together about this. Why don't you go in and meet with the top guy? So I went in and I met with Rob Givens and his reaction about having lost money in Puerto Rican bonds was so extreme. I couldn't wrap my head around it. I'm like, look, everybody makes investment mistakes, but guy, I need you to suit up and go back out on the field. The game's not over. And he was making it sound like he was ready to just pack it in. And then the New York Post article came out and I'm like, oh, I get it. So what did we miss?
0: Or what'd you do in that moment? When I saw the Post article? Well, you don't know, was his reaction market related or was it personal related?
1: Well, that's just it. And I'll never know. But I mean, those are my two dots and I could either connect them or not. And there are many other managers in the world and I didn't need a manager who was going to be tied up with whatever this woman was doing and the mess that he had created. And when I went in and talked with other people at the firm, it was clear that they all knew about his extracurricular activities and he was stupid about it. And I sat down with one of his key people and I said, look, I'm not going to pass judgment on what he's doing outside of the office. I said, but here are the top three things he should have done. One, not use his real name. Number two, Make sure I didn't get into the press. And number three, don't make promises you have no intention of keeping. Those are the top rules if you're going to have an extracurricular activity. He violated all of them. So the question was, why was he engaging in such destructive behavior? And this is an interesting thing about truly brilliant people. They typically have a flat side. So when I'm assessing money managers, and I've met a lot of them with huge egos and flat sides, I look for a partner. Do they recognize their own shortcoming and do they pair themselves with somebody who's sane? So you capture the brilliance of the founder, but he recognizes that he needs a ballast to keep him from running off the rails or her off the rails. And in the case of autonomy, I found the ballast. It was there. Here's what I missed they worked out of two different offices. Hmm. So the ballast wasn't there every single day.
0: And you didn't know they were in different offices. I did
1: know they were in different offices, but what I missed was not questioning, well, is that really gonna work? Can you be an effective ballast if you're in different offices in different cities and they're about a thousand miles apart? That's what I missed.
0: You have your team doing a lot of this due diligence. And these decisions you're talking about are really judgment from experience. So at some point in time, that information either gets filtered or the judgment has to come to you. And so when do you make that shift from the teams doing the work to, okay, I need to be involved in making the decision.
1: I have to meet every single manager before they're hired.
0: And do you meet them once? Do you-
1: It depends on the manager, it depends on the circumstances, it depends on whether I've known the manager from before. So there's no set rule yeah. about that. And sometimes I do meet them more than once, but I have to meet the firm myself. Before that happens, there's a lot of information that's coming to me. Take the situation with autonomy We have dealt with other situations where it's a small firm, it's a boutique firm, there's a brilliant founder. So I knew in that particular case, I was going to have to go in, meet the head guy, and then go find the, the ballast. And we talked about this in our due diligence meetings about this manager. So the team knew that that's what I was going to do. And oftentimes, the top guy will only meet with the top person especially if they're boutiquey and they're full of themselves and all this other stuff. They're not going to meet more junior people. And that's because top man syndrome still exists in this industry. The other thing, too, is that I've been around for a long time, and people do know about me in the industry. And so the team also knows how to use me, you know, sort of like you really want Roz to come in and meet with you. Or do you really want us to handle it? And so there's some of that 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 goes on. But I'm generally working with the team. I know what's coming down the pike. We talk about what the issues are. We talk about what the pressure points. The two directors of investments who are responsible for managers, due diligence and hiring, Josh Fenton and Al Kim, have worked with me before. This is the second time they've worked with me. So we know each other really well and that helps. And they're sufficiently secure in themselves to know when to say, okay, Roz, we need you to deal with this. And I'm sufficiently confident in their abilities to say, you guys can deal with this, you can handle it. I know you've got this. And so that mutual respect and trust enables us to deal with things effectively and efficiently. Yeah. I don't tinkle in their Wheaties and they don't tinkle in mine.
0: <laughs> what happens in time compressed situations? So, whether it's capacity constrained funds or short time horizon closings, how do you handle those situations?
1: The big key is not having 40 million managers. So, a lot of our peers have two to three hundred managers, yep. which and staff's about the same size, which means that a substantial portion of their resources are dedicated to monitoring existing managers, which means how much time can you spend looking at new managers? So because we don't have that constraint, I can take people and put them on a problem, a project, or a time constraint situation and get the work done. So by managing that 50-manager relationship maximum, it really allows us to use resources very effectively. The other tool I have in my toolkit is that our director of risk and operations also has a very strong systems background. And he's been able to leverage our time by making sure that we've had the right systems in place to do things as efficiently as possible.
0: What types of systems are those?
1: So we have Backstop as our overall portfolio management system. And we're one of the few Foundations or endowments that actually uses that kind of portfolio management system because we went around and we talked to our peers and nobody else was doing it. And we're like, well, how do you keep track of all this stuff? So everybody has access to Backstop. Everything is in one place. It makes it easy for us to get through our annual audits. The auditor has looked at the system. They're really happy with it. So that's one system. We're working on a second system, a workflow system, to actually interface with our master custodial bank, our finance department, and to really leverage our time in the implementation and execution of what we're doing. So Backstop is a static repository. It collects information, There are some analytical tools, but it's not a workflow system to help you get from point A to point B. We're looking at adding that system, which we expect will be in place later this year.
0: So you have 50 managers. What happens in that one time where there's a new manager, a new opportunity that you feel like, for whatever reason, they're a little bit better than what you have?
1: It's called conviction, baby. (laughs) So the question becomes, if it is a little bit better, is it enough for you to fire that manager? Because you have to make a decision. You can't hire everybody. And the team understands that if we hire the fifty first manager, then you can hire the fifty second, the fifty third, and then where does dilution really take over your investment returns? So the short answer to the question is who goes?
0: And how does behavioral bias play into that decision?
1: Oh, God, everybody has their little pets. But the team is large enough that we can challenge each other, number one. And number two, everybody has their eye on the goal, which is it feels really good when we've met our performance objectives. And we're a highly motivated team to meet our performance objectives. And we take a lot of pride in doing that we want to do a good job. So we recognize that you can have behavioral biases, but to what end? The thing about the team that is so important is that excellence is ingrained in every single individual and it doesn't matter their level. And when you have that, then people might start out with their behavioral biases, but they'll back away from them pretty quickly.
0: Do you have any particular way that you exit managers when the time comes
1: i'm not donald trump if that's what you're asking <laughs> <laughs> we start telling a manager they're in trouble okay and we start telling them why and the reason why is that if they can fix their own problem they save us a lot of work so when you only have 50 managers it makes it easy to be able to, to work hard identify the problems and tell the manager
0: What are examples of some of those problems other than, well, your performance isn't good?
1: We looked extensively at a manager who was in trouble and found out that there were issues with the cell discipline. And we pointed that out to the manager and basically said, look, you've got to go figure this out. And if you don't figure it out, then this is what we think is the largest problem that you're having. So that's an example of something that we'd focus on.
0: How did you flag that as a problem?
1: The manager starts making excuses for an investment holding instead of just selling it and getting on with it. And you start looking at the investment excuses and you do sub-portfolio attribution and you figure out the investment excuses are really what's accounting for 110% of the underperformance. So that's a clue. Yeah. So that's how.
0: Combination of qualitative and right. kind of data-driven. Right, that's
1: exactly right. And even in private capital, when the manager starts talking a lot about an investment and about making excuses for an investment, that's a clue. And so we are looking at our other investments of the same vintage year, and we're looking at other universe comparisons. And because we don't have very many managers, we can do a lot of work on a company-by-company analysis in our private capital portfolios to really understand, okay, where are the problems? Are they not making their numbers? Is the cash burn too high? And we can get into details with the manager about that. And some of them Don't like the fact that we know as much about their portfolio as we do.
0: What have been your biggest mistakes?
1: Oh, and I've heard this from so many other people as well, is not firing a manager fast enough. I've gotten better at that later on in my career, but that's probably the biggest mistake.
0: And how do you deal with the trade-off of the mistake of not firing fast enough versus not firing too soon? If someone's, you know, people work through problems sometimes.
1: So it's interesting. Going back to my autonomy example, two members of my investment committee have autonomy as a manager, and they did not fire the firm. They kept them. I was the only one who did. And we won't know for a while who was right and who was wrong, but our assessment of the situation made them both sufficiently nervous. And my point was, okay, maybe we rode through this, but this guy isn't changing, and if it's not this, it's going to be something else. Yeah. So we identified a character issue with the founder and chief investment officer of the firm.
0: And how about situations where it's less character-based and more some of the subtle things that you're seeing in execution? It's the drip, execution? drip,
1: drip, yeah. drip, drip method. And that's where those are the most insidious because you're Well, is it style related? Is it this? Is it that? And so one of the things that we do, and this is an analysis that I do with, so let's do a public equity because, um, or hedge funds. We look at the top holdings. We all have Bloomberg's. We look at, are the companies making their earnings estimates? Are they missing? And if they're missing, we actually look at, well, what is the stock reaction to the earnings miss? And we actually sit down with the manager and show them that. We're basically like, uh, what are you doing here? So that has helped us calibrate when there's a real problem or whether we should ride this horse a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. And that's been extremely helpful to us. So by going down to the company level and using all the tools that we have available to us, we can have a more engaged discussion with the manager, and then it's the judgment call about, are you being bs or is, or is he seeing it the way you're seeing yeah. it? Yeah.
0: What are you most excited about in the portfolio or, or new themes you're pursuing?
1: I'm excited and scared about China. Excited because it's going to be a great opportunity. Scared because their attitude toward rule of law is very different than ours. I'm a little afraid of the extent to which China can dominate. And if we're invested there, we're contributing to that. So all of that factors into making it really exciting. The other thing that has us very excited is that we think that Silicon Valley is only going to last for so long. If for no other reason, California is becoming very business unfriendly. If Gavin Newsom wins the gubernatorial race and he does to California what he did to San Francisco, and I don't know if you've checked out San Francisco lately, but it's become a disaster, then Silicon Valley cannot remain there. Somebody will leave and that will start the exodus. So we've been going around the world, Melbourne, Australia, Budapest, Hungary, the East end of London, and we're finding other pockets of venture capital excellence that are just beginning the way Silicon Valley did. We're a big investor in Israel, big investor. Now, nobody has seen a triple-digit IRR out of VC in a long time. I've got one out of one of our Israel investments. So by looking at areas that are smaller, more up-and-coming, we've actually been very hopeful that we'll be able to do well.
0: And is it hard to dovetail that with, you know, you run the numbers and you, you need to get $75 to $100 million with each firm for it to fill one of the 50 slots?
1: So we don't have to do it right away. For example, we built up our Sequoia allocation slowly over time, and now we're at those kinds of numbers. By not having a ton of managers and my ability to meet with the general partners directly, I can communicate to them, you're really important to us. We don't have a million of you. And that helps us get bigger allocations than what some of our peers get.
0: And what happens over time? So you've been here eight years. Right. And particularly in the private markets, at some point in time, you'll decide you don't want to continue with that manager, but you'll have a long tail of investments. And then you add somebody else and the 50, if you count the legacy ones, becomes...
1: So two things. First of all, if we decide we're not going to re-up with a manager, that drops out of our manager count. The other thing that we're looking to do is actively use the secondary market to modify our portfolio. So we've, we're have we developing a strategy to to do that.
0: Yeah. And And we've
1: already sold an investment in the secondary market that enabled us to hire another manager that we thought would do a better job
0: for us. Do you participate in co-investments? We do. And how do you think about that process?
1: We have a co-investment policy. There are a couple of key criteria. First and foremost, we have to be able to comply with the excess business holdings rule that is visited upon foundations by the IRS. And that says that you cannot own any more than 20% of an operating entity, a for-profit operating entity. That's number one. Number two, we make sure that the investment is in the manager's wheelhouse, that it's not a fishing expedition on the part of managers. They all have their fishing expeditions. We recognize that. Not every investment fits neatly within exactly what they said they were going to do. They all have their little wild hair. what keeps them occupied. So we have to make sure it's in their wheelhouse. Third thing we look for is that they're putting money in alongside us in the co-investment. Once those three criteria are met, we look at, well, if we add this to the portfolio, what is the incremental risk? Because it's typically inside the fund as well. And do we have more like it somewhere else? So there's the overall portfolio analysis that's done. And then we do look at income and cash flow statements because it has to be cash flow positive. So we need to make sure of that. But we're not re-underwriting the investment the way some of our peers have. We don't feel we can bring anything to that party. We underwrote the manager, and that's where our due diligence And as far as the underwriting is concerned.
0: that becomes a fit. Okay. So before we turn to closing questions, I want to circle back to your thoughts on the governance here. Mm -hmm. You said you were walking into a governance challenge situation. How has that evolved over the last eight years?
1: So when I first got here, my authority was a sum total of $100. Anything that related to more than $100, I had to go get permission from somebody. And rather than fight that, I recognized, and this was my CalPERS training, that I needed to earn trust, and that if I work to earn trust, that more will be given to me. And so, one of the things I'm fond of saying to the team is, "We'll go for the little yeses to avoid the big no." And so, it was very important that we took our asks and broke them into their component parts and ask them in stages so that we never got too far over our skis. So today, I've delegated authority for everything except broad policy and hiring a new manager. We have an investment committee to whom has been delegated virtually all authority. The trustees appoint the members of the investment committee and that's the governance structure.
0: What percentage of the time when you bring a specific manager to the committee With the recommendation to hire a new manager, does it get turned down?
1: It's only happened once in the eight years that we were here. I learned my lesson fast.
0: (laughs) And what was that lesson?
1: First of all, we changed the process so that we send out a one-pager to the investment committee in advance so that they know that this is a manager we're considering. And if you've got issues and concerns, please let us know about this. Or if you know something about this manager or you've got questions, please let us know.
0: How early on does that one pager go in your due diligence process?
1: At least one meeting before the meeting where the manager could end up being okay. voted on. So there's sufficient time for them yeah. to do that. And oftentimes they'll say, because we have a lot of chief investment officers on our investment committee, they'll say, I've had an experience with that manager that manager's in my portfolio. I like them. Or So we'll get feedback or we'll get questions or whatever. The other thing that we've done is we have two due diligence memos. we've got an internal memo that is extremely detailed. That's part of our record. we send to the investment committee is something that is no more than five pages and speaks mostly to the fact that we've adhered to our policy. So they know that we had the number of meetings, we looked at this, we checked that, we got comfortable with this. This is how we got. Because they're really not in a position to duplicate our work. What they're really there to do is to make sure that we adhere to policy.
0: All right, let's turn to some closing questions. What was your favorite extracurricular achievement?
1: I am very fortunate to have gone to SUNY Oneonta undergrad. It's a New York State school. And the year that I applied to Oneonta, it was harder to get in there than it was to Harvard. And it was the height of the Vietnam War and everybody was going to college, and somehow or another they accepted me. I was eternally grateful to them for accepting me, and I had a great four years there. And I turned around and, with my success, helped other students. And I was able to financially support 20 other students in pursuit of their bachelor's degree. And last year, Oneonta awarded me, well, the State University of New York, not Oneonta, but the State University of New York awarded me a Doctor of Humane Letters. That's fantastic. So that was pretty amazing.
0: What's your biggest investment pet peeve?
1: That we don't learn from our past mistakes. That's probably the biggest one. The other is when people are marketing to me, like know the audience. I've seen a lot of movies in my career. I probably know how they end. So please respect that. That's probably the other one.
0: What's the riskiest thing you've ever done?
1: I am acrophobic, horrifically acrophobic. And last year, I climbed the Sydney Harbor Bridge. And there were two points in that climb where I had a straight view right down to the water and froze. And I knew that if I didn't get over myself, I was going to hold up the other people in my group and I was going to cause the climb leader to have to deal with me. And I had to force myself through my fear. How'd you do it? I didn't give myself a choice. I just mentally forced myself to do it because I didn't want to embarrass myself. And then I found out, wow, that wasn't so bad. But that was terrifying to me. I was freaking out before I did it. But I didn't tell anybody I was freaking out before I did it. I just forced myself to do it.
0: What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you?
1: Respect. Imagine if we had more respect for each other, for ourselves, for our country, for everything. How much better it would be. Yeah. yeah. The importance of respect.
0: What information do you read that you get a lot out of that other people might not know about?
1: I'm a student of history, but I love to read it through the biographies of the people who are part of the history. So rather than reading a history on the founding of our country, I read the biographies of each of the founding fathers. And that was far more interesting to me because I learned about them as people. Yeah, And that's what biographies give you.
0: That's great. All right. Last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life?
1: Trust your gut. I would say that of decisions are based on my gut. And I spent a lot of time in analysis paralysis when I already knew the answer and I could have saved all that time.
0: Roz, thank you so much for taking the time.
1: Well, thank you, Ted. It's been a pleasure.
0: Hey, before you take off, I've started sending out a monthly email that shares a small selection of what caught my eye over the month. I get a lot of emails like this, and I'm sure you do too, so I'm only going to send no more than a handful of the very best things that caught my eye. If you'd like to receive that email, hop on my website at CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com and join the mailing list.